Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. For a long time, Malaysian politics was pretty easy to follow. The ruling coalition was Barisan Nasional, founded in the early 1970s and the dominant political force in Malaysian politics throughout the 1980s and 1990s. But this all started to change in the 2000s. And by the 9th of May 2018, an ideologically diverse opposition alliance called Pakatan Harapan defeated the long-ruling Barisan Nasional Coalition. This was the first regime change in Malaysia's history. But there was more. After just 22 months in power, the Pakatan Harapan government collapsed in February 2020, following a series of defections that led to a shift in alliances. A new government was sworn in in March 2020, led by Prime Minister Mohidin Yassin, but that only lasted till August 2021, when another new government, led by Prime Minister Ismail Sabri Yaqub, was formed. Now, with the next general elections anticipated sometime in the second half of 2022, there are discussions over a big tent opposition alliance to compete against Barisan Nasional. What will happen this time around? And what does all this tell us about how oppositions build alliances in electoral autocracies? To shed some light on these questions, I am joined by Assistant Professor Elvin Ong. Elvin is Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Singapore, where his research focuses on the politics and policies of authoritarian regimes, with a specific focus on the formation of opposition coalitions contesting a dominant incumbent. Elvin is chair-elect of the Association for Asian Studies, Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei Studies Group. Previously, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Southeast Asia Research at the University of British Columbia. His research has been published in various political science disciplinary journals, as well as various regional journals. And his book, Opposing Power, is published by the University of Michigan Press. Elvin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're here to discuss coalitions and alliances in electoral autocracies with specific reference to Malaysia. Can you start by telling our audience how you define an electoral autocracy and perhaps give some examples? So an electoral autocracy is really a hybrid uh, regime that consists of both features of a democracy as well as an authoritarian regime. So at the most basic the key feature of democracy is that it has elections. So that means that it allows people to vote and it allows the opposition parties to compete. But then these elections oftentimes have features of authoritarian regimes, such as repression, political violence, and gerrymandering of the electoral boundaries. So when these features have combined, this is generally what we know as an electoral authoritarian regime, where elections are held, but they are oftentimes unfree and unfair. So some examples of such kind of electoral authoritarian regimes around the world uh, can potentially include Russia now, Cambodia, definitely Malaysia, some would say Venezuela, and some would say India under the current uh, regime. Great. Okay, so I think that's really useful for background while we start discussing electoral autocracies and and the research you've done on coalitions and alliances. 
So your research does look at how opposition coalitions form, where previously separate parties that are not currently in power come together to form an alliance. It might seem obvious, but does partnering in a coalition like this give them more chance of defeating the incumbent? So the basic answer is yes. If opposition parties are able to form alliances, they are actually more likely to defeat a dominant incumbent. Of course, there's no guarantees of victory. The general statistical analysis tells us that their chances of victory probably increase from around 15% without an alliance to close to 40% of an alliance. That is... Some would say more than the double their chances of victory, which is quite impressive result when they are going up against a dominant incumbent. Okay, so given there is some chance that will increase their chances of victory between 15 to 40 percent, you say, how common is the formation of opposition alliance? Well, it depends on how you actually define opposition alliances. Different large data sets out there define opposition alliances differently. But if you compare the large data sets that people have put together, the general number seems to be only about 15 to 20% of all autocratic elections that are unfair and unfair see opposition alliance formation. So only around 15 to 20%. So this is a pretty interesting conundrum then, where the chance of victory increases from between 15 to 40% if an opposition alliance is formed, yet these formations remain quite low. How do you explain that? So the formation of opposition alliances are quite low because there are numerous barriers to forming these opposition alliances. The existing literature tells us that one of the main obstacles to forming opposition alliances is ideological differences between the opposition parties. When you have ideological differences, opposition party leaders will not be able to see eye to eye with each other. They will not be able to make any policy compromises with each other. And their supporters will also not be able to want to work together with each other. And therefore, because of these ideological differences, what most scholars have actually suggested is that these ideological differences are the main impediment uh, to the formation of opposition alliances. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Do ideological differences between parties inhibit alliance formation, as the literature suggests, or or does your research suggest otherwise? So I say maybe in general, we can say ideological division between opposition parties potentially make it more difficult to form alliances because party leaders and party members may not see eye-to-eye with each other. But when we look at the actual empirical instances of alliance formation out there, we actually see numerous instances where ideologically divided opposition parties actually form alliances with each other. So, for example, in Malaysia, the Islamic party, PAS, has actually formed alliance in the past with the liberal ethnic Chinese-based party, the Democratic Action Party. And we also see ideologically divided opposition alliances in other countries around the world, such as in Kenya, in Turkey, as well as in Venezuela. On the other hand, we see instances where many ideologically similar opposition parties, they do not form alliances, as in Philippines, Singapore, and South Korea. So it is really a puzzle why 
ideologically divided opposition parties form alliances and ideologically similar parties do not form alliances. And my book goes some way to try to explain that. Give us a spoiler then. So if these coalitions are not being driven by ideology, what is behind their formation? So in my book, I suggest that we need to look at opposition party leaders as strategic actors. They are oftentimes trying to calculate in their minds the costs and benefits of developing different kinds of campaign strategies for their own parties as well as cooperating or not cooperating with other opposition parties. And because these opposition party leaders are very strategic actors, they are very much attuned to different uh, perceptions. Uh, the first perception that will drive their calculation about whether to form alliance or not is that their perceptions of regime vulnerability. So if they sense that a regime is really very vulnerable and is there for the taking, then they'll be much more likely to want to form alliances with each other. The second perception which they very much attuned to is whether the opposition parties actually need each other, what I call opposition elites' perceptions of mutual dependency, whether they actually need each other to defeat this dominant incumbent. So if they feel that, well, I can defeat this dominant incumbent on my own and I don't need to form an alliance with each other, then you know they will not <laughs> form an alliance at all. But if they perceive that they really need each other's help to win, then they will form alliances. So you talk a lot about perceptions of both these variables and how they influence the formation of alliances. But what is actually influencing these perceptions? Where are they getting this information from? So by perceptions of mutual dependency, I'm referring to whether opposition party leaders are able to sense their relative strengths and weaknesses against each other uh, and whether they need their relative, whether they can complement their relative uh, strengths and weaknesses. So in my book, the main example which I use to demonstrate the high perception of mutual dependency is in 1986 in the Philippines. At that time, there were two main opposition party leaders, Corazon Aquino as well as Salvador Laurel. Their perceptions of mutual dependency was very high because uh, there was a lot of information from the opinion polls, from the Catholic Church at the time, as well as from the American embassy telling the both of them, look, Corazon Aquino is a very charismatic leader and very popular, but she does not have the electoral machinery behind her. Whereas Salvador Laurel, he has the electoral machinery, but he does not have the charisma of Corazon Aquino. So only if they join forces will they be able to defeat Ferdinand Marcos, who was the Philippine autocrat at that time. So my book suggests that the high perception of mutual dependency between Corazon Aquino and Salvador Laurel was ultimately what convinced them to form this alliance against Ferdinand Marcos. And you've also done some work in South Korea looking at the 1987 elections there. Yes. In 1987 in South Korea, uh, the two main opposition party leaders were Kim Dae-jung and Kim Yong-sam. And they were both vying to compete against the military regime's presidential candidate at that time. His name was Ro Tae-woo. And there, in South Korea, the perception of mutual dependency between Kim Dae-jung and Kim Yong-sam was really very low. 
And that was because Kim Dae-jung and Kim Young-sam did not have a lot of information about who was stronger or weaker relative to each other. Uh, both of them seemed to be very charismatic. They could turn out mass protests onto the streets whenever they wanted to. Wherever they went to campaign in different parts of South Korea, they would always have large turnouts campaigning for them. They, were very, they both appeared to be very popular. They both appeared to have different sets of political elites who were supporting them. So the relative dependency between the two opposition leaders was very low and very uncertain. So there was ultimately no alliance formed between Kim Dae-jung and Kim Yong-sam because nobody could decide who would, should be the main leader competing against Rote Ru. Yeah, okay. So you, you shared with us some examples from the Philippines and Korea, but we also have some really great examples from Malaysia and Singapore in the past three decades or so where ideologically divided parties have come together and also where ideologically similar parties have not come together. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Malaysia and Singapore case? Yes. So in the Malaysian case, what you have is a very ideologically centrist, bystand national dominant ruling coalition competing against three different opposition parties. Number one was the Islamic opposition party on the right. They were very conservative. Number two, on the left, it was the very liberal Democratic Action Party. And number three, there was a centrist opposition party known as Parti Kadilan Rakyat, PKR. And these three different opposition parties, although they were very much ideologically divided, uh, it also meant that they really appealed to different segments of uh, voters. And what this meant was if they could all work together to individually appeal to all these segments of voters, when they came together, they could actually pull the votes of all these different segments of voters to successfully uh, overturn the Barista national regime. And so they managed to do this gradually over time with a lot of experimentation and failure over multiple decades of electioneering. And so 2018 election that we saw the different parties coming together to try to defeat the Barristan National was simply a culmination of the repeated failures and experimentation over the years. Whereas in Singapore, the ideologically similar opposition parties, they are all competing for the similar sort of electorate. Nobody is really actually competing, appealing to different segments of the electorate. And so when you have similar opposition parties competing for similar voters, the question at the back of their minds is, if they actually form an alliance with each other, is there really any additional benefit to potentially increasing their chances of winning against the dominant ruling People's Action Party? And the answer to the question is mostly no, because if they can already appeal to this particular segment of electorate, there's no need to form an alliance to increase their chances because there's no increased benefit at all. So, Elvin, you said at the beginning of the podcast that we've we sort of seen electoral autocracies all over the world now, in Russia and Cambodia, in Malaysia. What are the policy implications of your research and, and sort of how it's going to determine or help us to determine democratic outcomes in places like Malaysia and elsewhere? The first policy implication is that 
the struggle for a free and accurate information environment, electoral autocracy is more important than ever. Because a free and accurate information environment will allow the opposition parties to know and recognize their relative strengths and weaknesses, which can allow them to recognize their mutual dependency. So in particular, well-implemented surveys, opinion polls that accurately reveal the degree of mass discontent against the regime, that accurately reveal the relative standing of opposition parties, is going to be crucial to try to foster a cooperative environment. The second policy implication that I can think of is that uh, each electoral cycle is really an opportunity for opposition parties to learn about the electorate, to learn about the utility of the campaign strategies, and to learn about how they can build trust and work with each other. So the more opportunities and platforms that can promote learning and generate mutual trust among opposition parties, the better it will be to foster a cooperative environment. And these kind of platforms can take numerous forms, right? It could be potentially holding a workshop together once a year just to sit around and talk and to foster some mutual trust and learning about each other. Uh, So the more trust and learning that you have about each other, I think the less obstacles that will be there to forming opposition alliances. Just mentioned platforms and workshops and that sort of thing, but of course in in other Southeast Asian autocracies, uh, such as the Philippines and also in Thailand, online campaigning has emerged as an important tool for opposition activists. What role does the online realm play in Malaysia? So the online realm is also very important in Malaysia, as in similar situation with other Southeast Asian countries. In particular, there is political information being driven now through WhatsApp chat groups, Facebook, as well as Twitter. So those are the three main channels of information dissemination. And what is actually happening in Malaysia is that the government is using a lot of its resources to dominate the online political sphere, to try to dominate the conversation, to try to shape the conversation. I haven't done particularly a lot of research on this, but some people have suggested that the government is using a lot of cyber troopers to try to flood the online sphere with the government's framing and positioning on uh, various issues so as to crowd out the voices of the opposition. So that is one particular angle that Malaysia's online sphere is, is influencing politics right now. Political science, for someone who sits outside it anyway, can be a bit of a dark art. How did you develop your findings? So the first comparison that I did between 1986 Philippines and 1987 South Korea is known in political science as a controlled comparison. So in both cases, both countries at that time share a lot of similarities with each other. Both of them shared very close relationships with the United States. Both of them had dominant incumbents that were declining at the end of their regime, and both of them had very strong mass movements on the streets that were campaigning against these dominant incumbents. So with all these similarities, what we could do is to eliminate all these as explanations for the different outcomes that we see. 
And so in this comparison between 86 Philippines and 1987 South Korea, I use a lot of uh, qualitative materials from newspaper reports, public diaries and autobiographies of opposition party leaders, as well as uh, American archival material from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library to try to make sense of what was happening between the opposition party leaders at that time. And so the comparison really brought out uh, the key differences between the two countries, which led to the different opposition alliance formation outcomes. Thank you. Now, this is a bold question to ask a, a political scientist, but do you dare to speculate about what is going to happen in Malaysia in the lead up to and, and at the next election? And so the, currently, right now, the Malaysian opposition is really quite splintered between a lot of different opposition parties. There has been a lot of government changes ever since the Pakaran Harapan was able to defeat the Barisan National in 2018. So whereas in the past, the Barca National was only staring at three opposition parties or four opposition parties coalescing into one alliance, the incumbent government is staring at potentially four, five, six opposition parties trying to find their way together to either cooperate or compete against each other. So it is really quite unclear what will actually happen. I think the greater fragmentation of the political system into many different opposition parties is going to be a greater obstacle to alliance formation this time around. So even though you still have a lot of ideologically divided opposition parties, which could potentially work together, I think the increased number of opposition parties is just going to make things a little bit more difficult. So whereas in the past you have three or four, now you have four, five, six opposition leaders that you have to talk through. So I'm a little bit more pessimistic about an alliance formation this time around. Okay, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll wait to see if your prediction comes true. But it's certainly a very fascinating topic, ideologically divided and, and similar opposition parties with relevance in Australia recently as well. So I'd just like to congratulate you on your new book, which is published by University of Michigan Press, Opposing Power, Building Opposition Alliances in Electoral Autocracies. Elvin, thank you so much for joining us at SEAC Stories. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.